0: My name is Annie Grossman, and I'm a dog trainer. I'm the owner and co-founder of School for the Dogs, a dog training center located in Manhattan's East Village. School, school School for for the the dogs, dogs, for the dogs. School, school School for for the the dogs. dogs, for the dogs. On this podcast, I talk about dog training, interview industry experts, discuss pet trends, answer questions, and try to communicate my love for all things related to behavioral science. Thanks a lot for listening. I think this podcast will help make you the best possible human best friend any dog could ask for. Ilana Alderman, I have tried so hard to get you on this podcast. You. You know how hard I've tried. So, God, I don't even know where to start because cause you are um, such a dynamic uh, person who I also happen to love very much. Um honey. Oh, nice. But um, let's... I mean, why don't you just introduce yourself and then maybe we can kind of go chronologically? Why don't you introduce yourself by whatever title you would currently give yourself mm-hmm. in your life? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then we could maybe work backwards or front, forwards, back, forwards from from early on um,
1: to now. To now. Um, okay, yeah. Um, the title I would give myself professionally would probably be um, "Animal Behavior Consultant." Um, or I, I at parties i say i'm a dog trainer it's just so much simpler and uh yeah i like to work with uh, any species of animals including humans so um, everything to do with behavior and uh, how we how it works and how we can change the way people or animals feel in a given situation that's what really fascinates me um and uh let's see what else we were you asking me how did i
0: I mean, I can say that you came into my life, I guess, it was before the fire.
1: It was before the fire. So
0: it was back when, because I remember I remember you came to School for the Dogs when it was in my living room. Yes. And yes. I think at that point you were thinking about doing Karen Pryor Academy mm-hmm. and you were living mm-hmm. upstate and you came in to just talk to me a little bit about it. Little did, yep. little did I know what a force you were. Um so it must have been like 2013, 2012. Yeah,
1: 2013, 12. Yeah, something like that. You and, and I worked for you.
0: Yeah, and then you worked for me for a few years before you moved to Colorado. And then you continued to work for School for the Dogs, really mm-hmm. building out our uh, professional program, a professional right. course, which is um, still in full force and uh, lives uh, atop the scaffolding you built. Um, and, uh, and of course I know that you still occasionally train mm-hmm. animals in, uh, in Colorado. And I should also I mention that when, when there was this massive fire in my apartment slash at school for the dogs, when it was in my apartment, you took my cat.
1: I did. Sylvia.
0: <laughs> yeah. Who who has since passed on and was already then mm-hmm. kind of on her last legs, but that was, I was, yeah, totally she was, for that.
1: We still did some training together, yeah. some tricks.
0: Um, but uh, but you are someone. I mean, I think you know this about yourself that like people refer to you as like some sort of Disney character. <laughs> like, <laughs> like you look kind of like an Israeli Snow White,
1: and, <laughs> and you Tan like, Snow White.
0: yeah, and you uh, you you do seem to have this ability to um talk to mice and birds and squirrels and such like uh, a white or cinderella um and to me you've always seemed like you like you must have like hatched from an egg like i can't (laughs) i know like i know you're from israel and i like know you were in the army and then i know you made it to upstate new york because of family because you're part you're half american yeah half french even though you were uh, raised in Israel but 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 it, it's like I, I can't picture how you actually became the person that you are you seem like a <laughs> an unrooted little miracle that somehow appeared in the world so maybe maybe you can talk about like how you first became interested in animals, animals. back in uh, back in Israel I'm guessing
1: I if I had to pinpoint it I'd say uh, stray cats that was my gateway drug but maybe even before that uh, maybe insects uh my mom was the kind of person who would like don't don't step on that ant look at the cute little ant kind of you know mom so i was always very aware of animals loved animals i was one of those kids and uh stray cats was how i i think i learned my first behavior lesson because on shabbat on saturday no school i couldn't really i lived further away from my friends. I I could sort of walk to some friends sometimes, but most of the time I would just roam by myself at a really young age. I know I did it at seven and eight and nine and ten. And I would just spend um, all day long um, roaming the streets and looking at bugs and looking and looking for cats. I was obsessed with cats. So I took some, I would take kibble from my own cat at home And I had a very limited supply of how much I was allowed to take, and so each little toss of a kibble was cost me something. I had to be really careful in how I used it. So I try to uh, lure the cats to just not be so far away from me. I'm talking about real feral cats, not the kind that are used to people and meow and come over to you. Like the kind that if they see you approach, they'll hide. So I would use what I know now to be negative reinforcement and positive reinforcement and toss my treats. And the the big victory was if I could eventually, after several weeks, get a certain cat to let me touch it. Like that was what my child ape mind wanted to do the most. It's like pet you. So I did a lot of that, a lot of uh, hours and hours of observation of stray cats and any, any, any animal really that I could see. But I didn't know that animal behavior was a profession or that dog training was a profession. Even the only dog training thing that I knew of was really harsh, corrective military type or police dog. And that was just not going to be something I could see myself doing. You know, I just didn't know it existed.
0: And you had a cat, but you never had a dog growing up.
1: I, to this day, I have never owned a dog. I've I've helped hundreds of people with their dogs. I've done board and trains where I spend even up to two weeks with people's dogs. You know, I've lived in homes where other people's dogs were, but I've never actually owned my own dog, which is crazy.
0: Well, which did you, did you go to college first, or you went to the army first, right?
1: First was the army. And did you um,
0: work with animals in any capacity in the army?
1: No, I didn't. I was uh, essentially a welfare worker, um, kind of a military welfare welfare worker but on an Air Force base in the South, in Israel. Then you
0: came to um, to New York, upstate, right, to go to college?
1: Yeah, via Norway. I did a little stint as an au pair for a severely autistic cousin, really. My, my aunt married a Norwegian man whose 18-year-old uh, was you know, very severely you know, autistic. And so they could hire an au pair for him. So they hired me, and I did that um, for six months. Um, so there was some behavior exposure there as well, because my aunt herself, she had a child that had a form of autism. So she got into ABA applied behavior analysis. So that was my first introduction to the fact that it exists, that you could break down behavior into small pieces. But again, that just kind of stayed in the back of my mind and simmered. It didn't really go anywhere. Yeah. And then I came to the States.
0: So how did you, how did you get into training then?
1: Um, so, I, I did the whole, I did my, my bachelor's in the States. Uh, basically, Karen Pryor is how I got into it. I read Karen Pryor's book. But the way I got to her book was after getting my degree in international studies, I moved back to Norway to work for my aunt at her business. And I was there for a couple of years. And while I was there, my uncle read um, uh, Temple Grandin's book. I don't remember which one, but the one where she describes Karen Pryor and positive and negative reinforcement. And she says, you should read Don't Shoot the Dog because it's good. And I remember I have like a couple of weeks I let by and then I just ordered it on Amazon. And when I read Karen Pryor's Don't Shoot the Dog, it was truly that classic Helen Keller moment of like, oh my God, I felt like a veil had lifted from my eyes that all the things that I kind of had intuitions about, it just gave it this clarity of... uh, you know, vision. Like it was just amazing for me. It really blew my mind. So I really wanted to do, uh, I just wish that Karen Pryor had a, uh, a course, a certification for animals, not just, you know, dogs, but I don't, I don't know, zoo, sanctuary, something to do with other species. But the only one, the only program that she had was for dog training professionals, where you also work with a second species that's not a dog. So I thought, okay, I think I want to do that. I want to do that. I, I took that course.
0: For someone who doesn't know what Don't Shoot the Dog is, how would you mm-hmm. describe that book and, and and what in it spoke to you?
1: Well, Don't Shoot the Dog is often referred to as the Bible of dog training, of animal training in general. It really just breaks down positive and negative reinforcement in really simple terms uh, with good examples of, you know, real life. So it just... Hmm how can you change behavior it's a it's a it's an introduction to the science of, of behavior change essentially is, is how i would see it
0: the only problem with don't shoot the dog i think is that the title confuses people <laughs> yeah
1: apparently karen did not hate like that title, title. Yeah. she hated the title i mean i'm so yeah. used
0: to it as yeah i take it for granted but i feel like if you heard the title without knowing anything about it you'd think
1: change but it
0: makes sense i guess once you read it so I met you right before you started Karen Pryor Academy. Had you done any any animal training then really before before that point? Um
1: Yeah, not really. I I read Don't Treat the Dog when I was still living in Norway. I thought I'd maybe move to Norway actually at the time. And uh the dog that I was living with was the first dog that I ever trained, Tinka. I just taught her some basic, basic clicker training from just what i got at don't shoot the dog then uh i ended up moving back to the states to be with my now husband and uh i really wanted to maybe take the Karen Pryor course i wasn't so sure um that's actually a sister michelle who told me you know if if you love what you do you don't work a day in your life <laughs> you know that, that saying that people say mm-hmm. um and I, that was that last little push that I needed. And I decided to, to enroll in KPA. But before I did that, I wanted to talk to an individual, a human being who had actually been through the program. And the only person that I could find through anything in the registries was you. So that's when I reached out to you and you told me, come over and help assist in a puppy class. And I was came over. That's when I came to your studio for the first time. And I was so like, start struck in a way. I was just like, this is so amazing. I was really dazzled. Um, and you gave me you gave me the whole insider view of the the kind of complete picture of how you felt about the KPA program and what you got out of it. And Your ultimate recommendation was go for it, you know. And uh, I'm really glad I did. It's an I think it's an exceptionally good program. Um, so it, it's kind of depends on what you put into it. I think that you can approach a program like KPA and and get more out of it or less out of it depending on on your attitude and, and what you uh you know how you're approaching it. If you want to master a new skill, or if you're there to just tick off some boxes, there are a lot of different ways to graduate KPA.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's definitely people who go into it after having decades long careers mm. as trainers, but you and I both went in
1: knowing absolutely that. fresh. Yes, I came in absolutely fresh. I actually, fin- it's a six month program, and I think I'm still the record holder because I finished it in seven weeks, minus the you know the assessments and all the hands on stuff. But I finished all of the because st- I was so obsessed with it. I was just, I dove right in. (laughs) This was amazing. I just ate it all up. I was completely self-directed, self-motivated. I wanted Mm -hmm. to absorb it all. Um, And uh, for my second species, I chose a fish. Most people had like a cat, you know, so I did. I trained. So before I worked for you, I had actually trained Tinka the dog, a little Yorkie that I was doing dog walks for at one point, and a fish. Those were... uh, (laughs) Uh, And the fish actually got me into a uh, um, apprenticeship—not apprenticeship. apprenticeship, What do you call it? Internship. Got me into an internship at a little zoo, a little AZA-accredited zoo that was near me. And I was at the zoo for a year almost. So that's when I got to have opportunity to work with a lot of different species. They were—they were very kind with me, very generous with me. I just had keys, like kind of—you can't go to the wolves because they're potentially tagged for re-release, and so they shouldn't be habituated to people. But you can pretty much do what you want.
0: Wow. You're, literally, you were given keys to the zoo. So yeah. I, I know I know some people listening are going to have this question. So I'm going to ask it. How and why do you train a fish? <laughs> or what what do you train a fish to do?
1: I read <laughs> it. Yeah. In, in, in Don't Shoot the Dog, Karen describes how she trained a fish to swim through a hoop. And when I read that in the book, I was like, I have to try that. I had to try that. That has to be my species. And I had this complete innocence of, well, Karen says you can do it, and it, it says you can. So why not? You could train an earthworm. I just didn't come of, to it. I didn't approach it with any kinds of fears. Or So to me, training Erasmus was the same as training any other animal. You just had to cut your treats really small. Um, why? Partly just to see how it's done, to learn um, how to train in general. Um, partly because it's really enriching i think for the animal's life even if it's a fish people underestimate the needs i i i am convinced that fish have emotions not just the sensitivity to pain that they have some kind of form of emotion that i could really identify in my fish when i was working with him so it does in- enrich a fish's life to do that i've yeah i've given several fish trainers and fish owners, uh, training advice with their own fish after this and how, uh, just using his food. I used a a flashlight as a marker for, uh, instead of a clicker, the way you would use a clicker for a dog, I used a flashlight and I just used his regular meal, his regular pellets cut up into really small pieces.
0: Did you feel emotionally connected to him through training him?
1: I was in love with that fish. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Karen describes this in her book, too. She says that it's impossible to not become emotionally attached to an animal when you work with positive reinforcement. It's just part of our wiring. I do something for you. You do something for me. This kind of back and forth that creates this relationship. I really love this fish. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I feel like, I mean, I had Amos for five years before I really started doing any training with him. And, you know, of course, I loved him madly before that. but I feel like the bond. um, Yeah. Our relationship became different after I, I mean, for the better, um, after we started training together. Mm -hmm. So you tell me about like some of the animals you worked with at the the zoo, because I think one of the things that separates you from most dog trainers I know is that kind of like you were saying, like you, your, your interest is in behavior. And I feel like, you know i i see animal training all around us i see how classical conditioning and operant conditioning is working on us um and i mean i talk about that a lot on this podcast yeah, you do, yeah. but i i haven't um worked with a whole lot of animals other than i mean i guess you could say i've worked with people <laughs> <laughs> but mo- mostly i've worked with dogs i feel like you you've i mean i remember when when one time you were helping me clean my closet and you were like, well, you know, one day I'm going to put up a website that's going to be, you know, dog training, other species, non-human, and then there's going to be a section on human training if people want to hire me to help them do things like clean their closet.
1: <laughs> that's still <laughs> like, shoved yeah. there as part of like one of my future mini careers. I love helping people organize like I, their spaces.
0: Yeah, like I feel like you don't shy away from from it, uh, the like I feel like I'm always, always a little bit embarrassed, kind of when I when people are like, Are you trying to dog train me? I'm like, Yeah, but I'm worried about talking about it. Oh, you have to be <laughs> really people
1: really do get offended. Um,
0: I, I think you really walk the walk in that you have worked with many different kinds of animals, mm-hmm. um, which is why I'm curious to hear about what you did at the zoo. Um, yeah. and and of course, I, I know, and we can get to this now that 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 dogs are not the main animal or zoo animals are not the main kind of animal you're working with now. Yeah. But tell me a little bit about you know, your, your, your zoo work.
1: Yeah, the zoo work was, um, I'd say I did a whole lot of things that are practical for the animals, um, like a scale training. I did a lot of scale training for a lot of different animals, especially the ones that were fearful for example. What, what scale? What so scale it, one of the main ways, weighing an animal, just weighing an animal voluntarily. Oh, oh, okay. So, so
0: the scale they go on to. Yeah. So. And
1: a lot of animals might be completely fine with it, but some animals are really fearful. So if you need to take like the ringtail lemur needed to go into a crate um, and then you weigh them in the crate and then you take them out and you weigh the crate and that's how you know how much the lemur weighs. And keeping track of an animal's weight is one of the basic ways that a zookeeper can assess kind of the, any kind of trouble, um, medical issue that might happen if you suddenly see a little bit of a weight drop or something like that. So it is important to be able to keep a weight on an animal. So there were, yeah, the ringtail lemur was uh, at one point really afraid, refused to get into the crate. And um, I did that. They had a guanaco, that's a type of a wild version of a llama. And he didn't, uh, you couldn't touch him, you couldn't approach him, and they'd never had a weight on him. So I thought, hmm, I love a challenge. And I, I used my feral cat strategies, including as well as the Karen Pryor prior stuff I learned. And I was able to get him into the barn to get weighed, and I was able to touch him and pet him uh, after some training. Uh, the Kia parrot that had some yeah, behavior issues, like just a lot of different practical things. Uh, I'd say that my, my passion in whatever animal That I work with, I really like to take a stressful situation, something that the animal would really want to avoid, sees the first cue of and becomes afraid and doesn't want to do it, um, and then turn it into one of their favorite games. That's something that you can do easily, I think, relatively in a zoo because the environment is so controlled, like they're pretty much there and they have food. And you know, so it, you you really can control a lot of the reinforcers. And, it, and 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 if you have like the okay, every week or every two weeks I get weighed, and that's this big negative part of stressful part of my life that I just kind of go through. If instead it becomes, oh, this exciting box of thrills and wonders that I get into and I get crazins and yeah, you know, it it just completely transforms. I think their life in general it just gives them such a such a great experience. And the same with dogs too. Um, I never had a particular preference for dogs until I started training dogs. I always loved them um, just as much as I love any animal. I just think they're they're great. But as I worked with dogs, I really did see that they have they're an exceptional animal. They have evolved to to work really well with us. Um, so, so I suddenly got it like why people were loved love dogs. So I really really love dogs now. I really got an appreciation for that. And the same is true when I become a mother. I before I, I I really tended to approach each animal that I met as okay who are you let's see just at, at I don't think I'm in you know innately superior to this particular animal I'm just a different species I just really looked at them at eye level and saw all animals as basically have different strengths and weaknesses and they're all fascinating and wonderful. But it wasn't until I had a baby that I realized, oh, we are a really, really exceptional animal. Like we are amazing. We learn so quickly. We're, you know, we're. I, I, I understand human exceptionalism more now than I did did before being a mom. Um, you,
0: you went to Karen Pryor, and you've done so much hands-on work yourself. Um, before we get to kind of what you're currently doing, what would you say? What would you say has been? Um, what, what like what kind of resources have you tapped into? What kind of, um, you know, your your education has been um, very much uh, self. What do you say? Like self self propelled. Self propelled. Self directed. Self directed. That's what I was saying. <laughs> yes. Oh, well,
1: yeah. I I did have another influence. So when I finished KPA, and I you know, like I said, I was I was one of those students. I was really into KPA, like I I told you before. Um, And Steve, you had Steve Benjamin as your instructor, too. And he's a very laid back guy. He's great. But I think he'd be the first to admit we're very different types when it comes to this type of thing. Like other students would come with Post-it notes that they scribbled stuff on. And I had a folder with printed out colored charts with rates of reinforcement. Like I was really into KPA. And when I finished KPA, I wrote Karen and I asked her. Um, what's next? Like, is there some kind of way that I can apprentice someone? Because I felt that I really needed hands-on experience seeing people, you know, told her I, I did the year at the zoo. I finished KPA, what should I do next to really learn from someone? And she said, you have everything you need. Don't look for more experts. Don't look for more gurus. You have the technology, just go and apply it. Um, but she did say that if I do want a course, I could take uh, Susan Friedman's Living and Learning with Animals, which she teaches online. And so I did that. Um, and that was the second whoa moment for me, because that was the very first time I ever encountered the idea of antecedent behavior consequence, that behavior science notation. I had never heard of that before. Um, and so that was very eye opening to me. I liked the clarity of that as well. I felt that that, was, that really gave me a lot of good tools. Now, she had two, you could listen in on the call like two different, like Tuesdays or Thursdays. So I listened to both. And then I would listen to the recording again, of course at double speed because Susan Friedman talks very slowly. So I'd listen to Tuesday live, and then listen to the recording, and then t- this Thursday live, and then listen to the recording. So, but other than those two, I really, I've done, you know, I've done some online courses. I read books on things, but that was really, I feel like I had the tools, and it was just time to get experience.
0: That's interesting because I haven't done Susan Friedman's course, although I'd like to, and I feel like I covered a lot of that information just in my own um, yeah in my own uh, reading journey whatever um, but I sort of felt similarly after Kpa like uh, especially about like, apprenticing or figuring out like okay well I, I understand this now but like how do I actually I guess two things one I felt like how do I actually do this
1: because
0: mm-hmm. I mean one, one of really the only criticisms I have of KPA is like you don't really, or I at least when I was doing it, which was a while ago now, like I didn't feel like I got a whole lot of time actually watching other people work with right clients. I would agree with um, I mean, like I knew how to train my dog, um, but how to communicate that in a way to, uh, to other dog owners to work with their dog, like that was really something I, for me, I had just had to figure out on my own. Like
1: I yeah. And that's what I love. There was no... Yeah. That's what I love about our apprenticeship program when we collaborated on that is that I I was teaching the, the theory and creating the course and, and then the students in New York would do the hands-on and actually right. shadow real trainers because um, it's one thing to understand the principle and then you're tackled, you know, like I said, I never owned a dog and someone says, well, my puppy's barking. So like, okay, I can analyze this. I can do my research and kind of come up with an idea. But if I could sit in on a consultation with a trainer who just, articulates a really good way of doing it like that's so much easier than having to reinvent the wheel yourself
0: yeah oh my god I really felt like I had to reinvent the wheel and and I and I didn't feel like um at least in New York I mean I I have to think it's different in different places but at, at least in New York at the time I did not feel like there were dogs there was nothing like, no,
1: it's you it's all like, you, you know, well at the time
0: people weren't people weren't like come learn with us <laughs> like, right, just seemed like right there was no one to like there was no one to um you know literally apprentice with the. and the other thing which you i think also hungered for was like uh, um, i mean i think you're more of a school nerd than i am um like i i definitely did not go to my my sessions with steve benjamin with like <laughs> <laughs> Folders of notes or post <laughs> <laughs> I, I uh, not my style, but um, uh, but I felt like I, I left sort of feeling like, okay, I want more. I want more of the nerdy stuff. Like I want more. Yeah, more like I some kind more. of bite. Yeah, just because a lot of the reading and for KPA was, um, it was kind of like highlighting like the most important things you needed to know. Yes. But I was like, but I want to know, like, the origins of this stuff, mm-hmm. and I want to know about the exceptions, and I wanted, like, I wanted, you know, like, meaty books to dig into. Yeah. Um, and well, that, too, was I, I, would, I feel like. I,
1: yeah, know. I would say another common criticism I heard of KPA, which actually I, I want to defend KPA a little bit with that, but is that it doesn't go into behavior problems. And when you're a dog right. trainer, 50% of the time it's a puppy who just needs the most simple hand holding to be an amazing dog. And 50% of the time it's severe fear and aggression. And so yeah. in KPA, they say send them to a behaviorist. Um, but but to defend that as well is that if you really go into KPA with um on, uh that hunger that I described, like you can you there's so much you're really primed, like you just there's a little bit of learning that you can do outside to supplement that little bit of the aggression and, and fear. But the tools that they give you how to break something down into approximations and, and train it properly in a sort of clicker training way, that's the same that really does apply to a lot of uh, the fear and aggression as well.
0: Uh, yeah, absolutely. You just um, need you need the to put in the, the years of like how and do I apply I, this? Yeah, before you can feel good about working with the other with the behavior issue, yeah, officers. and they don't
1: pretend that they're preparing you to to be able to deal with fear and aggression.
0: So you graduated KPA.
1: What what happened next? Um, I'd say pretty close, almost immediately. I started working for you. I had some clients locally that I started. Uh, working with upstate New York, but mostly I would just um, take the train to New York and New York City, that is, and uh, do in homes for you for school for the dogs. Yeah, that those, was, were good, uh, those
0: were good times.
1: They were really <laughs> good times. They were, I got very familiar with the subway system. <laughs> and then you broke all of
0: our hearts and decided to move to, to Boulder. Colorado. Can we talk about your baby mouse? I I just remember during that period during that period one time I visited you when you were living upstate but coming into the city to train and you were wearing this tiny mouse that was like literally the size of like my thumbnail um in a little pouch around your neck could you explain
1: yeah Yeah, my, my friend showed up at my doorstep with two dying baby mice that he found in his car and I was like no I don't think I can do anything about this and but I couldn't uh, resist I tried to help them and there, there wasn't I don't remember why I couldn't give them to a rehab um, but one died right away and the other one I may, managed to keep her alive for I think it was like 10 days uh, no could it have been I just know that I was up every 30 to 90 minutes feeding the baby mouse and I started to have auditory hallucinations it was great preparation for having a baby <laughs> and then she died and it was really sad um, but.
0: but it was pretty wild that I mean even to me that somebody would take on the task of trying to be a mommy mouse which is basically what you were trying to do
1: I felt sorry for the I just yeah I wanted to try I really don't remember I think I, I had contact with a uh, rehab that told me what to do I just it was a long time ago
0: and you were like, um, I remember you were like agitating the mouse's um, tummy with a Q-tip and its anus with a Q-tip, right?
1: Yeah, like to imitate the mother licking, yeah, <laughs> to stimulate the... the we're, we're
0: only telling the story because I want to uh, illustrate what an oh, incredible animal person you are with the extents that you go
1: to. <laughs> yeah, at the time, I was also volunteering at um, a bird sanctuary, like a Audubon type of... Oh, it's an Audubon. Mm-hmm. Um, and over there, there were a lot of baby birds that we would kind of stimulate as well and feed and did some work with their with their birds of prey as well. Yeah.
0: And then when you moved to Colorado, um, I know you you were training the squirrels outside your,
1: yes. your so door. Yes. Right? So caveat is we should not feed or, you know, befriend wildlife for their own benefit, but These squirrels were already extremely sassy. Like they, the first, when I moved there, um, like the next day, we're still putting things in the apartment. A squirrel just walked into my apartment. Like they were clearly, they had been fed since they were babies by humans and even taught to get into the apartment. And I found out that one of the neighbors had been letting the squirrels in. So I I felt that that gave me permission since they were already super habituated. Um, I had three that I focused my attention on. Uh, and uh, one of the fun things I trained them to was to uh, ring a doggy doorbell. I put the doorbell outside, close the door. And if they rang the doorbell, I would open the door and toss them a, a nut. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it just never, it would just made me laugh so much. Like I would hear ding dong and you'd open the door and it's like a little squirrel. And, you know, they have attitude, but they're just, I always imagine their inner voice being kind of like cussing at you, like, where's my bring it fast, you know like they have such an attitude it would just make me laugh so much and i taught them to you know jump into a box and out of a box and one of them actually got really hurt on his uh, leg and they looked really bad so i taught him to uh i trained him to get into a crate all the way to door closing and exiting the same way you would do with the dog and that took some time um just in case he needed it and then he just disappeared and he came back like a month later almost hundred percent healed. So I think he uh it, oh, he went to a... it sort of it sorted itself out. Um
0: he went to what, maybe the squirrels have their own hospital that he went to. Yeah,
1: he just went there. He checked himself in. <laughs> <laughs> so Those are a bunch of fun things I did with the squirrels. It was so much fun. The, the time that you have before you have a baby is like an infinite ocean of
0: <laughs> it seems like an infinite ocean of time. I know what you mean.
1: Yeah. And well and... ice back too I had like you didn't just I have some mice. mice you had like a mouse condo it, it was not a condo it was it was bigger than that it was <laughs> a, we called it mousetopia um and i would just build all these creations out of cardboard tubes it's on like it's on my youtube at born to behave like you could still dig back and see it and it was i the thing with pet mice is like people buy them for their kids and that they, because they're so um Docile in a lot of ways, like they won't bite you unless they're absolutely thinking that you're going to kill them, because they're they're very fearful animals. And so, you know, people give them to their kids and then they pet them and kind of scare them. I think, but um, I just loved observing them. So I cre- I created this big, I don't know what you would call it. Um, well, it was like a controller. Billy bookcase, right? It like was a big, yeah. Well, that ch- that was later, like but, an IKEA yeah. bookcase. Yes, where- yes, yes. Excuse- Oh, that was later because
0: I remember you had this IKEA bookshelf and like every yeah. shelf was like was like its own floor of a building
1: yes with holes in between and yes passageways they had went through several iterations but and before it was just kind of essentially like a closet and so every week really or sometimes it was every three weeks depending on how many mice I had I'd just take everything out and put new so I'd save all my toilet paper rolls and build things with hot glue gun and then you just watch them and every day I'd put like different treats all around the enclosure so that they could really forage and use their bodies and um, yeah, it was it was really really fun to observe and watch the watch them. I wanted to train them. I just was working so much. I I didn't really make that happen. I I taught a couple of them to station or come when called, but I really didn't do a whole lot of training that I would I'd wanted to.
0: So you worked with squirrels and mice in in Boulder, <laughs> and then and also goats. No?
1: Yes. Yep. When I first moved to Boulder, there was one of those you know new to Boulder things and. I met uh, Becca, who's the uh, uh, farm director at the Boulder JCC uh, goat co-op. And uh, I started, I I wasn't interested in being a part of a goat co-op. I didn't really want the goat milk, but I started training there. And then they ended up hiring me to do some basic training. And then after, since now I volunteer at it really, but I was doing um, hoof trimming, voluntary hoof trimming. I trained goats to, um, to trailer load in into a trailer in like seven second flat they would all run in and you could close the door it was like completely voluntary and then also teaching goats to be comfortable being milked for the first time it's even the most docile easygoing goat like the first couple times it's kind of weird for them Um, and and some of them are much more spirited like uh, the the goat uh, herd that we have there now they're mostly genetically nubian and if anybody knows about goats like they are a little bit more you know spirited uh so i don't know what that means genetically it just nubian means nubians are, are much more um they're much more vocal they have the big floppy ears that look like bunnies and uh they they they're more opinionated they could be more um i don't know they're just less docile less what they would call you know submissive so there were some issues with some goats would like one goat didn't want to refuse to jump on a stand because she didn't want to be hobbled and milked. And it was just, and then she, I worked with her, um, Vashti, and she ended up being the best milker that, that we had there. Uh, Cause I got, it's, tr- it's very difficult training goats in a co-op because you have like 25 different hands putting their hands on the, on the goats. Mm-hmm. So you have to go to the least common denominator and like really work it and, so depending on how much availability I had in my schedule, it was it was, it was kind of how much success I had really. But yeah, you also a lot of work with goats
0: took some dog. You have taken dog clients in Colorado. Oh yeah,
1: I worked full time uh, for the first I don't know, however long before I got pregnant. I worked until I was uh, eight months pregnant.
0: And how how would you say your Colorado? Dog clients differed from your New York clients, if Uh, if at all? That's an
1: excellent question. I would say that the human beings were very similar, but the dogs are just so much happier here. I I had a Mm -hmm. hard time in New York because I've come to think that big cities are just not appropriate for dogs. That's a terrible thing to say (laughs) because, of course, you're going to, you know, maybe small apartment dogs, like the little small breeds that they have more in Asia are. Uh, or here, too, but like the smaller breeds that if they're well socialized, you can exercise them well and you can give them mental stimulation. There's a lot of a substituting that you need to do uh, in order to satisfy a lot of and here here you just take him to a trail and you don't need to create food puzzles. of course you can and you do and I tell them to, but you don't need to. The dog can sniff things and run and play and, and do all these very natural natural things that in it, you can't take him to a dog park and expect to have that same. Yeah, I, when you walk around the streets as a dog trainer who understands behavior and body language, it can be really hard because you see dogs that are just unhappy or stressed. They're sniffing the floor. You know, they're, yeah, it's, it's, you'll see the occasional bomb proof, like happy little pit bull who's just like, woohoo, I'm walking around the street. I don't care about all the noises. I'm just a happy go lucky, like a kind of dog who will be happy anywhere, will be happy in New York City. But I'd say that it's hard. It's really hard. You have, you're, you're, you if you are a dog owner in new york city you have to proactively create stimulations that would substitute uh for what you would your dog would naturally get if he was a country dog
0: yeah yeah it's like you, in some ways you have to become a dog trainer i think to for a lot of dogs in in order to give a lot of um urban dogs a good life um it's not yeah. it's not so well, I'm not saying don't
1: own a dog. You shouldn't have a dog in the city. I'm saying you should know what you are taking on, the responsibility of the kind of thing that you need to do. Like, don't get a hunting dog. Don't mm-hmm. get a working breed because they're going to go insane. <laughs> like it's, yeah. it's really ch- There are really happy hunting and dogs in New York City, but their owners have done so much work to make that happen. Actually, I think the same is true for children and babies as well. I think it is harder and dense urban areas and um, some things are, are unnatural in both locations just part of our modern lifestyle I think is unnatural. like the fact that most of us are just a mother father or just a mother and a small child where I think the natural way for human child to grow up is with at least 15 adults that really love them that've known them since baby you know close kin uh, we don't have that I think um, for most most children growing up whether they're in the city or not so like that's uh, an area that i think is a real deficit Mm -hmm. um, today well you know bf BF skinner's idea in
0: um Mm -hmm. walden too is um is that he's like pro teen pregnancy (laughs) i know (laughs) like but the argument which is interesting is if like we didn't judge it and every 15 year old coupled up and had a baby then that baby's grandparents would be 30 and their great-grandparents would be 45 and their great-great-grandparents would be 60 and there'd be so many people invested in that child's welfare and <clears throat> happiness and there to like care and help whereas now like you know if you're like me and you wait till you know basically you're 40 to have kids and
1: yeah the Physically grandparents aren't the necessarily
0: around that long and the great-grandparents forget it
1: I think that it is better to have children much younger, um, but we, we are in a, a time of uh, culturally where you can't afford to do that. Most people don't have the means to do that. Right. So well, I mean, to, things would your have to be... first and get... You know.
0: Yeah, things would have to be set up very differently, I guess. would probably won't happen in our lifetimes. <laughs> but yeah. I mean, if it was set up that, you know, you could have a child at 15 and it would basically be the responsibility of your parents to deal with the child.
1: Yeah, well, that that's t- that's to address like the emotional, social needs of a child. Like, I really look at, at child raising. Like, I'm it's the way I see child raising is super informed by my behavior and animal experience. Like, you you, you bring your history with you everywhere that you you go. Like, that's just my bias and my yeah, angle. of course. Well, and so just, you had
0: you had Aton uh, two and a half years ago, mm-hmm. which I know exactly because it was one month after I had Magnolia. Um, <laughs> and um it's been interesting for me as a dog trainer uh to watch you parent Anton because i feel like you epitomize like the dog trainer or i should really say animal trainer uh, approach to parenting using positive reinforcement and successive approximations and um and go to lengths that um Honestly, I feel like I haven't gone to, partially just because, you know, I'm, like, running a business um, yeah. where you've been able to give it more time. Um, so, yeah, talk to me about, like, about what it was like sort of um, starting out with this new tiny <laughs> animal <laughs> to take care of. It, um... did, did you, th- I guess, did you think from the get-go, like, this is going to be kind of, like... Um, animal training that I've done for yeah, work except I, in my own home with my own
1: child or? I wasn't sure what to expect. I just kind of kept an open mind and was hoping that some of my experience would come in handy. I just had, I was surprised how much it applied and how handy it was. And you look at a baby and, and even a, a toddler who's pre-verbal up to that. It's, it's, it's very similar um, because you need to be able to correctly read their body language and listen to them in a way that's nonverbal. I like think we're so There are a lot of people who have become very confident and comfortable parents as soon as the children start speaking. Because suddenly they're like, oh, your tummy hurts. Oh, you, you want this? Like it's just everything kind of evens out for them. Whereas before, I have feedback from some friends that have babies around my same age. It's like, I just don't know what he wants. I don't know why he's crying. I don't know how to stop it. I don't know what he wants. And I think that I had an advantage there because... I could really read the body language. Like I never wondered what he wanted. Sometimes I couldn't give it to him. Sometimes he was just uncomfortable. But I, I really can't say that, that I didn't know what was expected, um, what what he was hoping for, what he wanted, what his little, you know, consciousness or desire. Do you needed. think
0: that's because you're just so tuned into
1: yeah, reading I do think body so. I do, I do think it has to do with emotional states and body language and, and behavior, and really seeing the connection between. You know the context of what's going on, what happened before, what happened after. and For me, it was a bit complicated, the situation with Eitan, because thank goodness it's not severe, but he's had a number of medical issues that I've had to deal with and still have to deal with. And so it has affected like the way I parent him. Eitan suffers from, well, there's no real, he, doctors really don't really know what it is, but they call it uh, involuntary breath-holding spells, which is just a term for we don't know why this happens but it's probably harmless where he experiences sudden physical or emotional pain his nervous system kind of like glitches uh because like this the signal is too intense and it just glitches and he stops breathing um and eventually it's grown to the point where he'll you know pass out the nervous system will just have him pass out so if he gets really upset over something which toddlers get upset he can just lose consciousness um, and lately, it's turned to seizures as well. So, like, you'll have a, yeah, it's really, really horrible. So, the first few times you you're holding your baby in your arms and they're blue in the face and they literally look like they're having a heart attack and dying. And I've had that happen hundreds of times. It's just really traumatic. It's traumatic. There have been a lot of really traumatic situations with it. Um, plus, he was premature. There were just a lot of issues. So, for me, um, the, as a trainer, I felt like I had a bit of an advantage, at least with the emotional part. Like for physical, I can't always control. Is he going to bang his head on something and have a spell? But I can set up the environment to have fewer meltdowns, tantrums, um, and like the discipline side of things. I've only had him have a spell twice from emotional reasons. And that's it. And, and I know he's close sometimes, but that's given me a lot of strategy. So that it has informed the way I do things that – I've always wanted to be the kind of parent who will brush the child's teeth with zero stress, without pinning them down, without forcing it, You know, but if I think if he hadn't had the issues where the stakes are so high, I probably would have pinned him down and just done it because you're so overwhelmed, especially as a first-time mother with so many things to do uh, that you just like, you know what, I just have to get this done now <laughs> and you're frustrated but for me like am I willing to have him potentially have a seizure right now no is it good is it worth it no so I'm, I'm much more careful about certain things and because of it I'm in some ways more successful with certain things mm-hmm. um, that's so interesting
0: way to way, interesting thing that life has handed you a situation where
1: you um, have to do positive reinforcement or yeah oh, yeah
0: right. well tell me about um I think before you were doing cooperative care, you you were first focusing on enrichment.
1: Yes, that's one of my passions for every animal, and so it was very natural for me to immediately do that. I also was so in love with my baby, and I just wanted to teach him and share with him the world. Like so, anything I did is an enrichment opportunity. Like I ate an orange, and he was like, I remember this vivid moment with the orange. It's like. I would, I let him smell the orange as I was peeling it when he was a really small baby, just like three or four months old. Like it was definitely three months after it was three months before he could eat, and his like expressions on his face when he would experience a new scent. And I just love I love enrichment. Um, I think we can define enrichment um, somewhat, uh, but I, I I like to think of enrichment as providing species appropriate stimulus that can uh, result in first natural development and also natural behaviors that that particular species would normally experience for a normal development and just for a normal life. So if you're looking at a dog, like a dog would naturally have, um, I I guess, two main ways of, of having enrichment. One is to forage for food on his own, which is sniffing, searching, solving problems, digging, you know, working in order to get food. And then the other one would be how to get my human to give me food. Since they co-evolved with us, figuring out how to get my person to give me a piece of a sandwich, I think that's actually an evolved kind of need. And I I like to use that as, um, you know, if you were doing some clicker training or trick training or something like that with your dog and you're giving him tiny pieces of food, that is actually a strong mental enrichment for your dog because they have kind of evolved to try and get that from you. Mm -hmm. So... Um, so when I look at a dog, how do I enrich a dog's life? Who is in, a, say, in an apartment, in a in a city? I, I try to create those kind of stimulations: food puzzles and food searches and clicker training, and all of those things are there to to substitute for what a dog would naturally just you just live your normal life, living in some village or some you know nomadic situation. This is what your dog would normally do. Uh, so you kind of. And the same thing, I think, with a baby or a child, like they've there's social needs, definitely, that we kind of touched on. So I'm really trying to have him have exposure and, you know, create relationships with people of all ages, not just babies his age, but, you know, watching social interaction, creating social bonds, but then physical stuff. They love to forage. Little kids love to forage. They love to pick things and sort things and um, so we had food puzzles. I know you did that with Magnolia too, where you just kind of create food puzzles for him. Um, and uh, and I think for a baby human, like they they love, at first it's observing. So while I, I everything I did in my life, I just usually would just wore him so he could see what I was doing. So he loved to watch me cook. And then as he got older, he participated in the cooking. Like he would crack the egg, he would beat something. Um, uh, so all of these things, the kind of apprenticeship type of learning that children love, like I was sweeping the floor. I got him a little broom and he would sweep the floor. He loves <laughs> physical. I find that as uh, it's enriching. It's kind of an enrichment. So I, and it's really fun for me to create enrichment opportunities. My, uh, my Instagram has a lot of examples at um, baby underscore enrichment. Um, just things I've done with him, uh, things I've done with him from probably four months old. I, I don't remember, maybe eight months old.
0: You're also just so good at you're good at uh, seeing enrichment opportunities, I think, where I wouldn't, <laughs> I mean, for instance, you know, it looks like every box that you, fr- from your Instagram, at least, it looks like every box that gets delivered to you, you're able to figure out some way to make that into some kind of interesting toy for him.
1: My my favorite go-to easy, super easy uh, enrichment idea for a parent would be any kind of uh, treasure hunt searches. Uh, appropriate to whatever age that the baby child toddler is. Um, I only have experience with age zero to two and a half since my son is two and a half. So that's the only real expertise-ish answer I could give you. But um, I'd say like you could start with a very simple food puzzle for uh, a baby who's just starting to eat something uh, with like little, you know, even if it's a Cheerio, and you could use uh, a food puzzle like you and I have done, or any kind of way that the baby needs to uh, to kind of forage to do some kind of action in order to receive food. So you could just take like a towel, put a cheerio on it, show it to the bait to the like the you know six month old or eight month old, um, nine month old, and then cover fold over the towel, and then the cheerio disappeared open it up, close it again, show it a few times like that. And then the baby tries to get that Cheerio, for example, that's like the cheapest, easiest way that you could create some kind of action for them to get food. I find that toddlers love to pick their own and get their own food. It's really fun. And then it can advance. So uh, when Eitan was a little bit older, I started doing um, food searches for him, uh, where he'd have, you know, maybe five blueberries locked up in a tin box and then you'd have to unlock it with the key. And then I start to hide the key in another bag. So I have to open the bag to get the key to unlock the box, which, you, you know, obviously you can't do something like that with a dog. This is the advantage, an exciting thing about working with a human that they're so smart. Um, and you just go at the level of your baby or your child. You don't want to frustrate them. You want them to be able to succeed 99 99- percent certainty. Like I know he's going to get this, but then you can add, increase the difficulty level. Um, so I would have two different, uh, box and bag inside of the box and a bag inside of the bag and different snaps that you have to work to open, to get the key, to get to another bag that you open to then unlock the box and get to the, um, and get to the blueberries, and you could see it in my Instagram. Like, he loved those, he would get so excited to be able to do those. And now we're starting to do the thing where I do, I'm starting to do a thing where I'll draw a map, like, say, I'll draw an area of the room that has certain stuffed animals in it. And in the drawing, I'll draw um, the treats, usually some kind of chewable supplement he has to take anyway. And I'll draw the treat, say, under the lion. And I show him, look, there's a candy over here under the lion. He's thinking about it so hard. And he goes to the wrong place. And then he figures out to go from the map to the to the candy or to the key. Uh, so as you can see, you can make it as straightforward and simple as you like. Or you, you can go ahead and make it more and more complicated depending on the age um, of the child. Yeah, any kind of foraging, any kind of looking for food and looking or looking for a toy, if special like let's hide. Uh, I had I used to have um Petit Sange, his little baby monkey, that is the baby of his bigger monkey, and he would get hidden and stuff like in a in a in a cup that you could that's transparent cup and I would put the monkey in there so he could see the monkey but he couldn't get it. And so the big puzzle was to to get Petit Sange out of the cup. Like that was one. And then once he could do that, I would put a little piece of cloth on top. Look, he's there. Nope, no, he's not there anymore. Look, he's there. And it's like you're looking at really young baby age. And that's fun for me if you could hear my excitement. Like I really like creating that sort of thing. <laughs> but it's so easy to do. Like once you figured hide it, find it, you know, babies love those games.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of like the the dog puzzle toys, the, the work to eat toys could – really be marketed towards uh <laughs> to toddlers we,
1: we need to create a new version that's you know baby safe and baby appropriate like because we both have used a number of food puzzles and when i would take out those food puzzles oh man i bought them brand new they didn't have any dog saliva on them or anything and i would put say three or four on the floor with cheerios blueberries if i needed to just Keep him contained while I was making breakfast for him. I just didn't want to wear him that day or for whatever reason, and so it would keep him busy um also before lunch, if he was getting a little bit too hungry close to lunch and I didn't plan my day right, I would plop three or four on the floor and he'd be really excited looking for just a small amount of food that wouldn't spoil his appetite, but he could manipulate and move the the wedges and um, yeah, I really like those when he was a very small um I, I delight in creating ways that, like, um, I, I think that one of the mistakes we sometimes make as modern parents is we just let kids, like, here's a toy. You go play. I'm going to do my grown-up thing because I have to get my grown-up thing done. And when I'm done, you, you know, so they kind of separate. And I say, okay, I have to do my grown-up thing, which is I need to say I need to do the laundry. Instead of doing the laundry in five minutes, I'll do the laundry in 15 minutes with him. For the first like thirty times that I do it, and then he loses interest in it, so he may wander off now and, and do something else but but getting the kids involved in your actual like just slowing down and letting him get involved in what I'm actually doing is i I don't know I think that that's something that we don't always think to do. any quick enrichment ideas you can
0: give to um <laughs> busy working parents like me who who uh want to be better at being engaged with their child i find it hard sometimes when it's just the two of us me and magnolia as she's a toddler i mean she's so sweet and she's so much fun but i do often have this feeling of like you know we're animals that are meant to be in groups and she should be with other kids and i should have other adults around and i actually find i do feel like i have i'm more engaged and have more fun with her often when it's not just the two of us Mm -hmm. like when there is one other kid over or one other um, adult adult there, you know, whether
1: it's my husband or a friend or whatever. Um, I agree with you. And I think, I think, I think that, uh, multi-generation is what a child needs around them. Like they need that child that's two years older and that's six years older and the granny and like everybody, uh, we, we always want to think, Oh, we, they need more kids. Let's put them more kids. And they can't really learn good social skills from, a two-year-old who doesn't have good social skills yet who's also learning Mm -hmm. you end up kind of with this you know you have a lot of classrooms like that both in daycare preschool school where it's just a bunch of kids the same age and they adapt to each other and they learn from each other like they're each other's main social group but they're learning from you know immature creatures how Mm -hmm. to immature. mature. So I really think there's so much value in having them be in a multi-generational situation. Like you, you, if you're in your playground and you see a group, sometimes there are families like that that are out there. Like I always, you know, encourage him. He kind of joins those groups. Uh, uh, but yeah I took a quick, to answer a question about a quick enrichment that you could do with a child that like with your one-on-one. I, I think the first thing to do is put your own phone away, like truly put your phone away disconnect completely because when you uh, that uh, and then just be there like you don't need to come up with something cool like they just want to connect with you and that is if you're looking at a modern working parent who has limited resources you don't have a whole lot of time just being together then when you are you're the enrichment you're good you don't need to bring any toys to the equation um now people are worrying so much about screen time with their toddlers. Like, my my kid watches too much TV. Like, worry about your own screen time when you have your child next to you. Put your phone fully away, and then just kind of yes and them. You know, <laughs> like improv. It's like they're there and they want to climb on you. They want to hide. Like the kids are pretty easy to play with. Like it's, it's peekaboo. It's tickles. It's pretend. Like just go with the flow. Um, and then when you're really present, you will you will play like. Tr- uh, I, I, another one of my, my mental mottos that I always tell myself is how can I enjoy my child today? Instead of, Oh, like I've had mornings where I was just so exhausted, a difficult nights sleep, especially when he's younger. And it's like, how do I face the day today? Like I'm just so burnt out today. That's, and then I would take a moment and say, okay, how can I enjoy my beautiful baby today? How can I enjoy him? And then the answer was kind of come to me. And Sometimes it means cancel the plans that you made and just be there, play at home, uh, whatever that means. But children, I think they want to be enjoyed and they need to be enjoyed. So if you're kind of, I'm doing this to be a good mom, I'm going to tick off the box of play with child. I need to do this. It's my duty. You, you're not, you're not going to do as good of a, of a you're not going to enjoy it. They're not going to enjoy it as much as if you're like, how can, when do I enjoy my child best? do I want to just take him outside together? Is that something I really enjoy? Like, how can I connect? Do I want to have him sit on my lap and play with a book? Like find ways that you enjoy, I think. Huh. So sort of
0: almost take a more selfish approach, thinking about like what you will enjoy in order to
1: mm-hmm.
0: bring that to your time with your kid.
1: Yeah. And some of the house were kind of started like that where I thought, you know, I, I want to be engaged, but, I also really want to have dinner ready later, so I would think about that and like, how, can I make this into a game? Can I make that into an activity? And and I, of course, um, I'm very lucky that I am able to stay at home with Aton. I thought that I would only do it for a year, but because of the health situation, like I actually can't put him in a preschool at this at this point, not yet. Um, so, yeah, like I have all this time that someone who is a full time working mom, especially during the pandemic you just can't. You don't you don't have the same amount of resources. You know, um so I think that you need to also just be patient with your own situation. You can't expect to be peaceful and, you know, baking cookies with your child when you're just barely scraping by to feed yourself <laughs> with your time allotments that you have, you know. So, I know that I'm very lucky there. Have you worked with him then with a clicker? I have. Not as much as I would want to, but I found I did find the clicker to be really useful when he was absolutely not verbal, uh, because I was I needed to train him for well I didn't need to train him but I chose to train him. He had, a, had to do an uh, an EKG, uh, where you, it's not very invasive. You just take the shirt off and glue really a bunch of stickers and then attach electrodes to that while being restrained in my lap. So it's not a very challenging behavior. I found actually training the nasal spray a lot more difficult, that's why I made a blog post about how to train the nasal nasal spray with your toddler. Um, But I still had to do that because he was only one and it would have been really stressful for him and it could have triggered a spell also. Why am I, what is happening to me here? So I I did use a clicker for that um, and I'm so glad I did. And I I do wanna make a a point also um, that I barely did any training, even though I am a trainer. My The day-to-day life just like sweeps you by like a big wave and you're just swept by. And, and, and working on medical behaviors is not something that I, it was something I kind of put off or didn't really want to deal with. And yet the little bit that I did do made such a huge difference for his experience, whether it's at the dentist or the EKG or uh, going to the pediatrician, getting vaccinated, all those little things like the little bit of training that I did get done has given me, I think, such a big improvement in, in his experience that, um, that's what kind of brings me the passion to try and create or get started creating a blog, to share those methods with, with other parents.
0: Tell me about, uh, training him for the EKG stuff.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, I just started with restraint on the lap and I used, I used food. I used treats, um, like, uh, you know, mini chocolate chips was a really good one. Um, And uh, I would kind of restrain him and let him go and restrain him, put the chocolate chip, let him go. Then he would come to me. He always came to me. If he wanted to leave, he was allowed to leave at any point. Mm -hmm. Uh, Did you give
0: it some kind of cue?
1: No, no, not. Well, just the situational cue of being on my arms and kind Mm of maybe I tap my, I would tap my lap. And then I started using stickers, like easy to stickers, and put regular stickers. He likes stickers, so I put I'd let him explore the stickers, and then I would put the sticker on him, and I would put a sticker and treat him. Sticker, treat him, and then it was done. The EKG was mostly restraint, and then putting on taking off, you know, the shirts off, restraint, stickers, and then add slowly add duration to it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And and at first, you could see some of the early videos. I have them all on my Instagram if you dig back enough you could see that some the like was he, the duration was shorter in the beginning like he couldn't do longer and i was able to get him to be just relaxed with it i also used a, his his monkey papa Singe. um <laughs> and then we would put stickers on papa Singe and you know restrain papa Singe. there are a lot of things that you could never i would it didn't initially occur to me to do it because i'm used to animals who don't care about their stuffed animals but uh but yeah, I was able to do some modeling and pretend or have him do it to me. And then I do it to him. So it's mutual. Uh, I think that children, babies, uh, they really don't like it if you were doing something to them that is removing away their choice and removing away their freedom. Like they just, there's a natural resistance to that. So they, by doing it more of an interactive back and forth, you do it to me and now I do it to you, then it's okay. It's easier for them to, to accept it emotionally.
0: The you do it and then I do it thing is something so different than working with dogs, though, isn't it?
1: It really is very different. What are what are some of other your other like highlights of
0: what 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 you're calling child cooperative care? That's your website, right?
1: Uh, The toothbrushing and teaching nasal spray um, because he it's something that kids really don't like, and he really really needed it. And now we do it every day. He needs allergy medication up his nose, uh, so we do that every day. And I'm so So what what are your
0: tips on that because um i haven't tried that with magnolia since she was quite little but it did not go over very well
1: oh yeah yeah you can uh maybe you could put in the show notes the the link to the yeah totally the toddler yeah. to tolerate nasal spray because um i have all my tips in there but for nasal spray i started it out where you put the nozzle in the nose but you don't actually spray you're just reinforcing that for seeing the nasal spray bottle and then um slowly approximating the nose in. And every like 10th or so insertion does result in a spray. Um, and then, uh, yeah, you just kind of break it down, re- reward it. Um, and I also incorporated with Ethan a song. Um, we have a song in Hebrew where uh, about the little bunny that forgot to close the door and uh, got a cold. And now he has <laughs> a cold. And so he sneezes. And in the moment of la, 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 hapchi, La, la, la. Uh, ap-chi. Oh, that's so funny for a, an eight-month-old, you know. <laughs> and so I would do it to myself with the nasal spray and then, ap-chi, and do it to his dad and do it to him. And so we kind of, it was a bit more of a game, like get him in that playful mood, mm-hmm. more of a, like a, a goofy mood. That was a good one. And i did, the trouble with a lot of medical things, but definitely with nasal spray is that, First of all, it's never fully trained because there's something inherently unpleasant about having something up your nose. Um, And then also I had to force it. Like I didn't have, okay, here you go. You have six months or you have three weeks, whatever it is, to train this the way you would want to in an ideal world. But what if after day three, I actually have to put the nasal spray in so that he can breathe at night that night, right? Because I have to. Um, And so your, your training constantly gets sabotaged by real life coming in. And what if in the time in between when you needed it, you just avoided doing any of the training because you don't want to think about those things. You want to have fun and go do things. And, and then all of a sudden you need it the next day. That's my life. Mm-hmm, I really mm-hmm. haven't done like the training that I want to get done. So, um, So I just created a difference between a fun consent type of situation versus I'm sorry, I'm going to do this to you now. So you know the difference. Um, so I would sometimes pin him down and put the nasal sprain because he couldn't breathe. I had to do it. And it was heartbreaking mm-hmm. for me. <laughs> it was hard. Um, but then if it's a training situation, it's a play situation, I do not force it. Absolutely not. And and I'm just, I am amazed how much it worked even though the training wasn't good. Like the training was incomplete and and not as as, like, gradual and consensual every step of the way the way I would want it it still worked it still to this day works I think that cooperative care um, it's like a, a framework a mental framework in general of how you your attitude towards parenting in general uh, where you're looking at the long term versus the short term mm-hmm. um, so like if, even if he was a very very small baby there, I'm always waiting to see the feedback from the baby. I'm not just doing things to you. I'm, I'm listening also. So if I was going to dress him, I would kind of wait for him to push his arm through himself. Or um, if I was interacting with him and making him laugh, I would pay attention to his eye contact. So if he was like disengaging and looking to the side for a minute, mm-hmm. I would just wait. I would wait. 10 seconds 30 seconds and then when he re-engaged and gave me eye contact i would continue and that gives him control over the stimulation because sometimes we're very stimulating with our baby talk and our woo, you know so a baby goes from giggling to all of a sudden he's crying and you don't know why and i could i can see the situation like oh he gave you several cues here he turned his head away and you continued with the you know baby talk like the intensity and it was just too much for that baby for example mm-hmm. And I think that is part of cooperation. It's listening to, are you okay with this? This is good. Another one that you wouldn't maybe think of as cooperative care would be like tickling. Um, Eitan loves to be tickled, but Mm -hmm. it's a fine line because you could tickle, torture a child or a baby, and I hate that. So I would show him I'm about to tickle him, and then he puts his arm out. And when he puts his arm out, I go and tickle, 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 and if he takes his arm back in, I stop. Mm-hmm. So he has full control over stopping the tickle, and if you can stop the tickle, you tolerate more of it, and you get to enjoy it without that fear of, you know, of of overwhelm. Uh, and that's just a small example, but yeah. Um, do you think? You, do you plan on taking this, you know, to beyond your blog,
0: like to actually help people in their homes with their children? I mean, you could know, you become a, a cooperative care professional, in home trainer?
1: I don't know. I'm kind of leaving that open. I'm not sure. I, I have so much stuff recorded and pictures and things during from baby to now, but I haven't really had as much time to sit down. And I feel like I have so much content that I just want to, here's what I know now. It it may not be perfect. It may not be the best, but it's probably two steps ahead of someone who's pregnant right now and trying to prepare, you know, like I have enough, I think, value that I, I wish I had been able to read about so the first thing I think would be to just put down what's in my head into the world, um, just to provide value that way. Um, and then, and then for for tr- actual training, like the, the sky's the limit. I mean, he's only two and a half, and there's going to be a lot of situations that he still has to face. He's probably going to have to face a you know get more dental work. He he's um, yeah vaccines, but I need to I need to train for that. And there are kids out there like who need really intense medical things. And there isn't that, like, I have a feeling that in five years, 10 years, the the you're going to have dozens of blogs and videos that can really, really help parents who have babies, children, who have to go through medical procedures. But I don't really see that exists quite yet. So I think there's a real need for that because uh, you're so, you're so helpless when you're terrified for your little child's life or for their health or even just for having a good night's sleep for them. Like you're so afraid for your child and so you really defer to the doctor, and the doctors, a lot of times, are very desensitized to anything that's to do with consent. Like they're really much like, get it done, get it done. I'm the professional, go with it. And so you end up going with it, and then you feel terrible. Oh, I should have stopped that. That wasn't a good. That was good, of course. That's necessary. But some things, if you were a little bit more of an empowered parent, you could say, no, I'm not. I'm going to leave this dentist, which is what I did. I did not like one dentist. And I switched to another dentist who was willing to go with my crazy ideas. And she, <laughs> what you do know, you mean? Yeah. So I had, um, I, I, Eitan had two fillings. They're not technically fillings because she didn't drill, but he had two cavities, probably because he's a mouth breather, especially at night. And so there's saliva. And anyway, uh, and I, I came to a dentist and I said, look, I don't want you to f- force force him to open his mouth. Like, he needs to open his mouth for you. Even if it takes a couple of visits, I'm willing to pay and come a couple of times to get him comfortable. And she just wasn't able to do it. She wasn't, she just, you can see that she's like, okay, you're a crazy mom. (laughs) Didn't you, Didn't I feel
0: like I remember, didn't you have some questions like that you were asking dentists before you went? Yeah,
1: and that's another thing that you, that a dog trainer uh, would also tell you, like if you're going to go find a dog trainer, you have a few questions to say, okay, what if my dog does something wrong? how should, what will you do in a session? You know, what, and then the answers that the trainer will give you will, will kind of clue you in. Do I want to hire this person? Right. So I call, I called a couple of places and at one place I asked, okay, what if um, my, my son doesn't want to use the dentist says, open your mouth. I want to look in your teeth and he refuses to open his mouth and turns his head. What will the dentist do? And so she answered the receptionist. I said, well, you know, we try to get it to open their mouth. But if he can't, then we'll just ask the parent to, you know, kind of, like, hold the child and, like, hold their head in place. And we'll just kind of pry their mouth open and, you know, and basically force it, right? Which, if it's an emergency, absolutely. you got to do what you got to do. But we're, this is just, like, a, a, a one-year-old first visit. Like, take a look at your mouth. like. So then I called another office. This is Dr. Jen. Um at uh, Rock Pediatrics in Boulder, and she's like her reception. The receptionist said, "We know she has a really good way with children. If if she doesn't, if she can't get him to open his mouth, they'll just do a friendly visit and try again next time."
0: And you were like, "That's the right, right. answer."
1: Thank you, right? Like, like <laughs> and it's a, it's an attitude difference. I totally understand the dentist who's just like doesn't get it. um mm-hmm. And there's a very big difference between a four year old and a one year old. Mm-hmm. Like they, and because they can't express their fear and two days like when you leave the office they they look perfectly happy-go-lucky so they just got over it you're still doing something when you are scaring a child or forcing them to do a restraint that they're just not comfortable with there is an impact i think um it just depends it really depends on the situation but uh if you can do it in a way that's force-free you know then do it mm-hmm. when it comes to behavior
0: in kids course there's like applied behavior analysts but i think it i think it's usually brought up more with kids when there are developmental issues with the kids and not usually thought of as like just an approach to parenting that can be as natural as you know as breathing
1: I think it's coming. Um, I think I think it's inevitably going to come. And when you're talking about behavior science, like they're looking at, here's a behavior problem. Let's fix this, right? Um, but I think it goes beyond pure behaviorism, like to a full, whole child, kind of the way we, we approach a dog, right? Like it's not, okay, the dog is doing a nuisance behavior. Here are ways to stop the nuisance behavior. But you can be, that's like one type of dog trainer, but you could be uh, deeper than that. You could look at the whole picture of what's going on in the dog's life. What are their emotional needs and physical needs? Mm-hmm. we always address that with the client too. And the same thing with a child, like, like we're talking about t- tantrums, for example, I know we're kind of digressing here, but with a uh, like, if you're looking at a, t- a toddler's tantrums, you have basically endless numbers of triggers. If you can't really train them all, you know, I wanted the blue cup, not the yellow cup meltdown, right? That kind of thing. Um, so oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> and so people are thinking like, okay, here are some tactics when she wants the blue cup, then I'll do this, you know, or a kind of a redirect or whatever. But like, for me, it's more like, what is the state in which little triggers make him melt down, make a ton melt down? And how do I avoid that to begin with? So like uh, sleep, uh, I don't wake him up. I'm very good with naps. Like I make sure he gets a lot of sleep. Like when he doesn't have enough sleep or when he's had to be frustrated multiple times in a row, like have to go somewhere he didn't want to go and be told no many, many times and he's tired, then he every little thing could be a trigger. So I just change my schedule or cancel things or make a point of setting him up for success in the first place so that there is he's well-rested, he's had a lot of yeses, he has a lot of opportunities to do his natural behaviors and the things, and then he's so much more resilient in situations that would otherwise, in another state, make him melt down and be upset. You know, So I think that that's also a behavior, like a dog trainer's perspective on, on having a child is like setting them up for success is such a big part of our training when we work with animals um and and i think that really informs it It's like more than just okay let's let's clicker train a behavior let's clicker train an open mouth right all right i'm being herded by my um by my tiny person can you
0: say hi to ilana can you say hi ilana say hi ilana hi ilana (laughs) <laughs> Hi, Magnolia. Hi, Tia. You're such a sweetie pie. You're gonna meet Ilana okay. soon. Ilana and A ten are gonna come play. We're gonna hang out all the time, right? All right. Well, um, I love you. I'm so happy to know you and I can't wait to see um you continue to be an amazing parent trainer, let's call it, <laughs> to A And um and I can't wait to hang out with you soon.
1: Thank you so much, Annie. I always feel like I could talk with you for hours. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you so much for listening. And special thanks to Bill and Lizzie of Toast Garden for the amazing theme song. You can find Toast Garden at youtube.com slash toastgarden. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review on iTunes. You can also support us by shopping at storeforthedogs.com and you can learn more about us at schoolforthedogs.com You can also connect with other listeners by downloading our brand new app to visit schoolforthedogs.com slash community